Hi, my name is Nelson Bennett, and this is the Merovingian Podcast. Before we start today's episode, I have to apologize for its delayed release. Unfortunately, I have been both moving houses and starting a new job, so I simply ran out of time to write and record last week. Hopefully, it won't happen again, and we can stick to our weekly release schedule. Anyway, last time we said goodbye to Clovis after taking a quick look through his dirty laundry. Over his 30 successful years on the throne, Clovis had built a model for future Merovingian kings, an estate that was focused on amassing wealth and utilising the military prowess of the Franks. This episode, we are going to see the immediate consequences of this legacy as we meet his four sons, Theuderic, Clodomer, Childebert, and Clothar, in episode 6, The Kingly Brothers. Just like the life of Clovis, we're going to split the lives of his sons into two parts. Today, we're going to focus on the immediate aftermath of Clovis's death, and the succession. Then we'll talk about the major conquests of his sons, in Thuringia and in Burgundy. On Sunday, we'll wade back into the murky waters of Frankish power politics, and see how the brothers plotted and schemed against each other incessantly. Since Clovis only had sisters, it is with this second generation that we get to see what will happen when there are multiple Merovingian kings ruling the Franks, a situation that will become the new norm for the rest of the period. Their father had killed his friends and distant relatives to amass power and wealth in his hands. Will his sons cross the line and kill their own family? Yes, yes they will. Along with meeting the four new kings of the Franks, we are going to make another new friend this week, the historian Ian Wood. Wood's magnum opus, The Merovingian Kings, 450-751, is one of the foundational texts for the study of this period. While nearly 30 years old, it remains important, and will be a text I will refer to often as we move forward. Now, the law of primogeniture, the system where a father's eldest son inherits most or all of his lands and titles, does not exist in the Merovingian period. In the medieval period, primogeniture will be crucial to keeping kingdoms and estates together, centralising their power to protect the interests of the competing noble houses of Europe. But Clovis did not have the luxury for this established tradition, and had to decide for himself what to do with his massive new realm. He had his eldest son Theuderic, who we briefly heard about last episode, Theuderic already was a distinguished military leader and seems to have been a strong and active man and was already an adult. The only problem was that he was not the son of Clothild, Clovis's influential Burgundian wife. The other three brothers were all sons of Clothild and thus had their mother in Clovis's ear to advocate for her underage sons. Up until this point, there seems to be no established tradition for who was called Rex, or King. As noted before, we are still unsure why some Frankish leaders earned the title, while others had to settle for merely being called chiefs. Like most early Frankish traditions, it was likely just an ad hoc system that described whoever had amassed enough power to force others to acknowledge them as kings. The interesting part of this for our purposes is how the title was applied to families. As we have seen, other kingdoms, like the Burgundians, had brothers who were called king at the same time. 
Godgesil was referred to as a king, despite clearly being Gundabad's junior partner in the realm. As we'll see later in this episode, this tradition was also shared by Germanic tribal groupings outside of Gaul, with the Thuringians also having multiple brother kings. The Franks, however, do not seem to have shared this tradition. As Ian Wood points out, Ragnachar was named Rex by Gregory, but his brothers, including the possibly treacherous Rikar, were not. Wood argues that this shows that the Frankish realms were not automatically divided amongst brothers after their father's death, thus paving the way for Clovis to keep his kingdom intact and pass it all to his only adult son, Theuderic. But Clovis did not take this path. Perhaps Clothilde was in his ear and persuaded him to allow her sons to inherit equal portions. Perhaps he felt it was only fair, or felt that the realm would be stronger with multiple kings. Perhaps he had the gift of foresight, and saw other barbarian kingdoms fall to succession disputes after the main royal line died out. Whatever his reasons, he chose to split the kingdom into four parts, sharing power amongst his sons. Clovis's split makes two things clear. First, the division of his kingdom really laid bare what he felt the most important aspect of his realm was. Income. Each son was given a major city as his seat. Tuderic got Rheims, Clodomer got Orléans, Childebert got Paris, and Clothar got Soissons. Beyond this, the rest of the kingdom was divided not along geographical or political lines, but instead city by city. This was because cities were the major source of taxable income for the Merovingians, thus showing Clovis was more interested in equitable income for his sons than defensibility or general coherence. The second aspect of this division is political. It is clear that Clovis expected the brothers to act in concert, working together effectively rather than competing. While later sources refer to each brother's realm as a kingdom, it is very clear that at the time this was not the case. In the mind of Clovis and the people of the time, there was one Frankish kingdom that just happened to have multiple kings. It would take decades before this kingdom would split into recognisable sub-kingdoms. Perhaps Clovis, in his old age, was reminiscing about his early years, when he fought alongside fellow kings against the enemies of the Franks. But power loves a vacuum, and this division of the kingdom would set a tradition, a tradition that would have profound political consequences for the rest of the Merovingian family's rule. Constantly divided, constantly competing, the Merovingians, lacking any real external threats, would tear each other apart in various attempts to amass power and re-establish Clovis's dominance. But the four brother kings did not immediately fall to infighting. Why not? Well, for one thing, three of them were simply too young. Despite who officially ruled what, it was obvious Theuderic would take control of the realm as the only adult and the only seasoned military commander. And take control, he did. During these early years after Clovis's death, Theuderic seems to have acted as a sort of unofficial high king, and all of the action of the period occurs around him. The first major event was a novel one, a seaborne invasion by the king of the Danes, named Clochiliac by Gregory. Clochiliac is called High Gallic 
in Old English poetry and even appears in the epic Beowulf, but he plays a minor part in Frankish history. The invasion was likely minor too. We get no record of any major cities being attacked, and it appears to have been repelled easily by Theuderic's already adult son, Theudebert. Nevertheless, it is interesting as it marks the first major appearance of Danish seaborne raiders. The Viking Age is still several centuries away, but the roots of those raiders that would come to terrorise Europe are clear even this early. After this brief brush with the future, Theuderic then got to work emulating his father in the best way possible, conquest. Theuderic got himself entangled in Thuringian politics after being approached by one of their kings, Hermanfred, with an offer of alliance. Hermanfred wanted to oust his brother and fellow king Baderic, and apparently offered Theuderic half of the Thuringian kingdom in return for his help. Remember, the Thuringians had already been subdued by Clovis in the official narrative, letting us see again that the narrative often exaggerates the extent of his successes. Theuderic, enticed by the implausibly good offer, marched his army into Thuringian territory, and together he and Hermanfred defeated Baderic. But this conflict is not as simple as it seems. First of all, why would Hermanfred offer half of his kingdom? He would essentially be exchanging sharing power with his brother Baderic for sharing power with a new Frankish overlord. It really strains at believability. Gregory also records that Hermanfred then tricked Theuderic and took possession of the whole realm himself. This is also strange. Theuderic seems to have been a capable and intelligent leader. It is odd for him to be tricked in such an obvious manner. It is also odd that he waited several years before revenging himself on Hermanfred and seizing the rest of the Thuringian realm. This whole first Thuringian episode stinks. The most likely reason for this is Gregory once again messing with the historical events to help his narrative. A more likely scenario has Hermanfred offering Theuderic some kind of tribute or submission to the Frankish king. The story of betrayal probably exists to justify the destruction of the Thuringian realm and Clothar's later marriage to the captured Thuringian princess, Radegund. Radegund was an important figure and a friend of Gregory's and Clothar's sons are the kings in charge during Gregory's life. Thus, cleaning up the episode would benefit Gregory politically and help make his narrative more dramatic. As we move on, I want to make a quick note alongside the invasion and destruction of the Thuringian realm. Too often, it is tempting to simply list the conquests and battles of the Frankish kings and focus on the overall politics of the realm. But, it is worth remembering the actual human cost of the actions of these men, and recording their behaviour to show what kind of men they really were. During the invasion, Gregory, as he so often does, records an over-the-top series of heinous crimes and impious actions by the Thuringians, laying the moral groundwork for Theuderic to attack and destroy their realm. There are, however, some details that we can pick out from his work. He records that the Thuringians set a number of traps on the battlefield, including a disguised pit which the Frankish cavalry rushed into en masse. Yet, despite this trickery and the destruction it caused to the Frankish force, the Franks still massacred the Thuringian army. This gives a strong sense that the Thuringians were simply no match for the Frankish kings. Theuderic had enlisted Clothar's help, 
and together they must have had an overwhelming force compared to the Thuringians. One king they might have been able to face, two was simply too much. The Thuringians had dabbled in larger politics, with Theodoric the Great even forming an alliance with them to contain Clovis in 507. But alone, they provided only a minor inconvenience to Theuderic and Clothar. So, what was the Frankish capture of Thuringian lands actually like? Did they simply seize the treasury and tell the people they were ruled by the Franks now? Well, a letter Radagun wrote years later shed some Gregory-free light on the invasion. And being free of Gregory's pro-Frankish slant reveals a much darker and more horrifying picture of Frankish conquest. Theuderic and Clothar seem to have learned from their father's struggles and massed their troops to perpetrate a brutal sack and subjugation of the Thuringian lands. They were successful, but the details Radagun records in her famous letter, The Fall of Thuringia, are not pretty. Burned palaces, powerful families lying dead and unburied, wives walking barefoot through the blood of their slain husbands, children torn from their mother's arms. Radagund is biased, of course, and writes in a dramatic style, but the sorrow in her words speaks to the loss she felt and the trauma she endured. In one telling, Radagund herself, as the daughter of the previous king, was put aside as plunder, and Theuderic and Clothar began to argue over who would get to marry the child and gain the associated prestige and the link to the old Thuringian royal family. After the argument threatened to turn violent, they eventually drew lots and Clothar won, sending Radagund away into years of isolation in one of his villas, groomed by hand-picked servants whose job it was to educate the young girl and make her into a pleasing bride for the king. When they eventually married, she was barely of age, but he was well into his forties. It appears Gregory glossed over a lot of these hard details, none of which paint the Frankish kings in a good light. While not too far out of the ordinary for the time, it is always worth noting the extreme brutality of these men to avoid glorifying them and their actions. Now to the main event of this episode, the conquest of Burgundy. This conflict is a complicated one and has a lot to unpack, so let's start with what we know for sure first. Clovis had fought against Gundabad, but the Burgundian king had survived the conflict and emerged the undisputed ruler of his powerful and prestigious realm. After Clovis' death, Gundabad was likely the most powerful ruler in Gaul, and certainly the most prestigious. We can tell this, once again, thanks to the titles bestowed on him by the Eastern Roman court. As with Clovis, these titles reveal who the Romans thought was worthy, and Gundabad held the prestigious title of Magister Militum, the same office held by men like Stilicho, Aetius, and Ricimer. Between Clovis's death in 511 and his own death in 516, Gundabad was at the peak of his power, and his watchful eye might have been a reason for Theuderic's lack of action immediately following his ascension to the throne. In 516, Gundabad's son Sigismund took the throne, and his ascension appears to have been uncontested, a rarity among the Burgundian royal family. Sigismund seems to have moved with confidence from the start, implying a continuation of his father's power. 
He successfully negotiated for his father's title of Magister Militum from the Romans, a clear sign they felt he would continue his father's ascendancy in Gaul. He also issued a significant law code, the Liber Constitutionum, as well as converting to Nicene Christianity, the same sect as the Romans and Franks, and overseeing a large church council in 517. Things may have started off well for Sigismund, but his luck soon ran out. With Theuderic cementing his power, and his son Theudebert, as well as Clodomer, Clothar, and Childebert, all coming of age, Sigismund was facing a series of young, energetic, and hungry Frankish kings. One slip-up, one hint of weakness, would be all it would take to encourage them to pounce. And soon, such an opportunity would present itself. In Gregory's narrative, we have a dramatic scene where Clothild summons her sons and tells them of the wrongs done to her by Sigismund's father, Gundabad, asking them to set out and take revenge upon the Burgundian royal family. Enraged by the treatment of their mother's family, the three sons set out and smashed the Burgundians, capturing Sigismund and making his brother Godemar flee for his life. This depiction of the conflict, however, has largely been questioned by historians. It doesn't really make sense for Clothild to suddenly request revenge here. Why wouldn't she have done this decades before? Why hadn't she asked her powerful husband for this? Most likely, Grigory was again employing some artistic license to give the campaign of conquest a justification and a dramatic, personal edge. We are instead offered an alternative by Wood, who notes that Sigismund was vulnerable after a major scandal engulfed his court. In 522, apparently stirred up by his scheming and manipulative second wife, Sigismund had his son from his previous marriage, Sigistrix, strangled to death. According to Gregory, she convinced Sigismund his son was plotting against him, but he appears to have quickly regretted his actions, and soon set off to do penance for this deed. This may have been a genuine act of penance by a father who regretted his actions, or just a king shoring up support after killing his popular heir, or some mixture of the two. We'll never really know for sure. Either way, the instability was exactly the weakness the young Frankish kings were looking for, and in 523, Clodomer invaded. The realm must have been in shambles, because he appears to have easily captured Sigismund, along with his wife and children. Clodomer then, in true Merovingian fashion, swiftly had them all murdered. But if he thought the death of the royal family would seriously weaken the realm, he was wrong. The Burgundians were one of the great powers, unlike the Thuringians, and would not give up so easily. When Clodomer returned the following year to finish his subjugation, potentially with the help of some Ostrogothic allies, he was attacked and defeated by Sigismund's brother, Godemar, at Verzerance. During the battle, Godemar also managed to kill Clodomer. This is an important event, both due to the consequences for Frankish and Burgundian politics, and for reminding us that the Frankish kings were not invincible, and mistakes could still lead to deadly consequences. Thus, the first of the four kings died, on the battlefield against an opponent he had underestimated. Upon his death, 
his three brothers divided his kingdom amongst themselves. But Clothild took Clodomer's young sons into her own care and began to prepare them for the throne. But more on that in the next episode. Using the battle as a focal point, Godemer managed to firmly establish himself as king in Burgundy. But the death of one hot-headed young king does not mean the Franks were cowed, and they certainly wouldn't forget that defeat. Learning from their brother's mistake, Clothild's surviving two sons, Clothar and Childebert, joined forces to attack Godemar in 534. It appears that the joint onslaught, even without the help of Theuderic, was too much for the Burgundians. This time, they were successful, besieging the Kisuri Vatun and effectively annexing the region into the Frankish realm. This is the final end of an independent Burgundian kingdom, a kingdom that has checked Frankish power for decades. The fate of the Burgundian kingdom reminds us that the period is very fluid, and changes, even to great realms like that of the Burgundians, can be rapid and devastating. The Burgundians, however, were not gone, and the aristocracy of the area would eventually become major political players in the Frankish realm. We will leave the three remaining kingly brothers of the Franks here, disunited, but with their greatest conquests achieved. On Sunday, we'll return to our normal schedule, and we will delve into the scheming and backstabbing we skimmed over today, and also talk about the only Frank ever to challenge Merovingian supremacy, Munderic. See you then. <laughs>